Many of you know that uh, God has, for whatever reason, chosen this season of my life to be one filled with turbulence and trials. I was studying in my office Friday morning. My dad called. He said, your granddad didn't wake up this morning. Talked with my mom for about 30 minutes. Many of you know she has Alzheimer's and things like this are just hard for her to understand. I got off the phone and I just hit my knees right there in the office. Because I wanted to thank God that He gave me as many years as He did with a living example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My dad, my granddad was 76. For the first four years of my life, he was my dad. First message I ever heard preached from a pulpit, he was preaching. He had one year seminary. That's all he could afford. He's preaching in a little country church and couldn't pay his salary. He hitchhiked about 50 miles, hopped a train, rode to New Orleans. Wasn't a popular thing to do in his day. That was for academics. My granddad went to seminary for one reason. He wanted to learn Greek and Hebrew. Because that's how God chose to give us his word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For 50 years, he served the Lord. And little country churches, and nobody knew who he was. And he loved it that way. He had a heart attack in 1994. Had quadruple bypass. Took about three months off from the pulpit, and he went back to preaching. Couldn't hardly stand up. His legs hurt so bad, he couldn't hardly stand up. So he retired at 65 and moved back to my hometown where he grew up. But never wanted to quit preaching, so he filled the pulpit for about two years wherever somebody had led him. And a little Methodist church that was going to transition to the Southern Baptist Convention called him. They had about six people in the congregation. And they just said, we need you to come and help us. He took the call that night, didn't think about it, didn't bat an eye, and he went to work. In 1996, he went to work. Took six people, he started visiting in the community. When he retired in 2000 for the last time, there were 70 souls in that church. I told Heath this morning, he's a little odd. He would go to the role of the church and go to somebody's house and he'd share the gospel with them. They said they were Christians. He'd invite them to church. And then he'd say this, do you know anybody that lives near you that doesn't know the Lord? That's how he built his prospect list. Shared the gospel. Preached the gospel. 
preached a very, very simple gospel. He was not an expositional preacher. Though in his last years as we spoke about preaching, he said, I should have been. I just didn't know. (laughs) I did the best I could. At Thanksgiving, he looked at me and said, I love you. And I'm proud of you. It's the last thing I remember him saying to me. My uncle called and asked me to do the funeral. I'm going to do it this week. He said, Daddy wrote a directive for his funeral, six pages long. (laughs) That's my granddad. And he amended it through the years. And the last amendment he made about two years ago, he said, please ask my grandson to preach my funeral and tell him to preach the gospel one more time. You're not going to get to hear that, so I'm going to give it to you today. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. He won't perish. I want to talk to you this morning about a very simple but profound truth. And that is not that we love God, but that God loves us. And He didn't just love us in some vague and spiritual way. He sent His love in flesh and blood and His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. For God so loved the world. That word for directs us back up in the passage to Jesus' words to Nicodemus when He said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He was speaking about the new birth. Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you understand When I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses, that's what the four is referring to, I believe, lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life for God. It wasn't haphazard that Jesus Christ came to this earth. Neither was it haphazard that He was hung on a cross and lifted up so the whole world might see Him. It was the plan of God the Father. And it was rooted in eternity. The love He had for the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. So we see that the four refers back to that verse prior which says that He was lifted up in the wilderness. Like the serpent in the wilderness, he was lifted up. The analogy is perfect. The Israelites were bitten by serpents who burned burned with a fire of venom that was deadly. In 100% of cases, it was deadly. They didn't know what type of serpent it was. They didn't know why it had plagued them. God just said, if this serpent bites you, you will die. And he said, Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a staff and lift it up in the midst of the camp so that when they're bitten by that serpent, 
if they turn their eyes to the bronze serpent in belief, they will live. You see, God didn't direct them to walk somewhere, to travel a long distance. He didn't direct them to learn some facts. He said, look on that serpent and you will live. That was the only medicine they needed for their souls, was to believe in God. It seemed like foolishness, I'm sure. I'm sure there was probably some medicinal guy in the camp who had some herbs and things to heal people from things like this, and he thought, that's foolishness. No one can be healed by simply looking at some statue that Moses just made and erected in the the midst of us. Nobody can be healed that way. Does God not know that if everybody looks on that serpent, they're still going to die because they haven't gotten any medicine, they haven't gotten any cure for the venom of these serpents? It seemed like foolishness to the Israelites, I'm sure. But that's how God's plan for salvation looks to the world, isn't it? It looks like foolishness. Paul said, I come to preach the cross. It's foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved, it is power. It is power. He said in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power unto salvation to everyone who believes. You see, God hasn't directed you to travel some great distance to some location, some geographic location like Mecca. God hadn't called you to do anything of the sort. God hasn't called you to walk down this aisle. God hasn't called you to do great things for Him. God hadn't called you to earn your salvation. God hasn't said you had to be wise according to this world. What God has said is, look on my Son in belief and you will live. That's what our God has said is the method and the mode of salvation. Look on my Son who's lifted up like the serpent and you'll live. I want to tell you, the object of God's love today, that's what I want to talk to you about first. The object of God's love from the passage. For God... So love the world. That's the object of His love. The world. Now, I understand that many of you, and and I know sometimes I might want to limit this, uh, but I want to show you some passages. I want you to think with me about some passages um, that will show the condition of the world, and yet that God still loves the world. If you looked back, and we're not going to look back, But if you would look back to Genesis chapter 3, you would see that there was an innocent world created by God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived in complete innocence. They were ignorant of what we know as sin. They didn't know evil. They only knew good. They only knew obedience. And under the deception of the serpent, they were convinced they needed to be like God, knowing good and evil. See, they weren't satisfied with being in the image of God. They wanted to be just like God. In reality, they wanted to be God. That's what they wanted. Just like the serpent of old, Satan had wanted to be God. Now he had passed that on to them. They were bitten by a serpent in the garden. And that serpent was Satan. And there was only one way they could look for salvation. And I'm telling you, it's the same way you need to look today. It was Jesus Christ. You say, well, they didn't know about Jesus Christ. Well, I want to tell you, when God gave the curse of sin, God spelled out the first gospel message ever preached on the earth. He said, the serpent is cursed and he'll crawl on the ground and eat dust all of his days. And Eve, you shall have a son, you have your children, your son shall crush his head. 
That's the gospel right there. Promise. Pain in childbirth, and yet through that painful childbirth, there will come from your loins, Adam and Eve, one who will crush this serpent. It's the same one who crushed the poisonous snakes in the wilderness when Moses made the bronze serpent. It was Jesus who saved the people, not the bronze serpent. And it's the same one who God said, I've sent him into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only son. It's the same son that was promised so long ago. We see it in Genesis chapter 3. What's the condition of the world? It's sinful. Not just some people are sinful, all people are sinful. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you're here today and you are lost, let me tell you, you are a sinner. You really don't need me to tell you that, do you? Because your life is filled with failure. And if you weren't a sinner, you couldn't fail. Have you ever thought about that? If you were innocent of all sin, you could never fail. You could never die. Your loved ones wouldn't die. You'd live forever. You're a sinner. You're under the condemnation of God. It's written in your heart, the law of God, and you know that you have violated His ways. You know you're not God. You know you're a sinner. I don't have to convince you of that if you're being honest with yourself. Now, you may say, I'm better than the guy down the street or I'm better than that lady in the pew just in front of me. But she's not the standard, is she? And neither is your neighbor. God is the standard. And you don't measure up and neither do I. And neither does anyone else in this room measure to the standard. And so, God loves a world that is sinful. The object of His love is a sinful world. You say, why why would He love such a world? You know, Carlton, I can understand why He loved Adam and Eve when they were first created because they were innocent. I can understand how He loved His created work when it was not fallen and it was not marred with sin and the image of Himself was clearly visible there like a mirror. I can understand how He loved that. How can He love post-fall man? Post-sin. How can He love a person like me? I am so sinful. I am an utter failure. Everything I do is rebellious against God. And yet God says that He loves us. I will ask you to turn to 1 John. You might notice this is not my normal mode of preaching. As you're turning there, I'll confess that. I'm not preaching expositionally so much, though I can't get away from it totally. It's a lot like a topical message. For occasion like this, it fits. First John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. You say, how can He love a fallen world? He can't do anything but love it, because He's loving. God is love. He is the character of love. He is the 
the founder of love, no one would love anyone else except that God loves us. Love is not some emotional, sexual passion. That's not what love is. Love is a gift from an eternal God who is love. The Bible says we love because He first loved us. If God wasn't love, there would be no love in the world. That's how God loves this world. Because He is love. Everything He does comes from His character. Therefore, everything He does is wrapped up in His love. Everything. Everything He does is wrapped up in His love. But He doesn't stop there. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. You see the same passage almost that we're studying in John 3. So that we might live through Him. That's 3.16. John 3.16 and 1 John 9, 4.9 are almost identical. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the appeasement, the satisfaction for our sins. God's love is towards this sinful world. And you say, how can He love us? And I say, He can do nothing but love because He is love. He is God. The condition of the world is sinful. I said that, and I want to show you another passage that will help bring that even more into the forefront of your mind. Because I really want you to think about it. In Romans chapter 5, it's not just that we're sinful. It's not just that we've done some bad things. I want to show you two passages that say you, you are the enemy of God. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, you are the enemy of God. You may have other enemies, but you have no foe, no enemy as powerful, as great as this enemy. He is set against you, and yet, because of who He is, you are kept from hell today. And because of who He is, you sit able to listen to this message physically, hear it. And because of who He is, you might go home today and have time to reflect over what you hear here in this place today. That's all based on His love. But our sinfulness makes us an enemy of this loving God. Romans chapter 5 Verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, not for the good, for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You see, you're an enemy of God. By the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. 
We're not only enemies. That might, you might think, well, I became an enemy because I did wrong things. But I want to show you another passage that can, will convince you, I hope, that you're not becoming an enemy. You didn't become one. You always were one from your conception in your mother's womb. You were an enemy of God. Ephesians. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Is that a description of your life? Carrying out your own desires? The desires of your body? Maybe the desires of your mind? And the mind and were by nature, by our very essence, by our very substance, our nature, we are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By our essence, by who we are. We are enemies to this loving God. For God so loved the world, not just the good people, not just one ethnic group of people, the whole world He loved. And the whole world is sinful. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you say, how can He love us? Because 1 John chapter 4 tells us, God is love. And yet, we are enemies to this loving God. We hate Him who loved That's our response to Him in our nature. It's not the way we begin to respond to Him at some point in our life when we figure out that we like to do fun things that are known as sin. That's not when we become His enemy. We're His enemy at conception. We are rebellious, hateful, sinning, glory-robbing creatures. That's what we are by our very essence. And God's response to that should be to condemn every one of us to hell. And yet John 3.16 says God's response is love. God's response is sending His Son. For God so loved the world. The object of His love is the world. Not just the world, but the sinful world. Not just the sinful world in general, but He loves His enemies. Those who were by their very nature children of wrath. Salvation is limited to the elect. But God's love is unlimited. John Calvin writing on this passage said, As hard as men may try, the word world encompasses all mankind. God loved the world. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Because we would say, well, how can He love those who die in their sin and go to hell? And yet He does. He's not pleased with them. They have been created for a purpose. They are serving that purpose. And yet, as long as they walk the face of this earth, God's love is lavished on them. See, God is so not like us. Do you love your enemy? Jesus said, love your enemies. Do good to those who 
harm you and persecute you. And you say, how can you do that? And he says, follow my example. Follow the Father's example. Let me give you the picture in the Bible of God's love. The picture in the Bible of God's love is Jacob and Esau. (coughs) Jacob have I loved, the Bible says, quoting God, by the way, and Esau I have hated. There it is, Pastor. But I want to encourage you. Aaron's walking through Genesis with you in the mornings. When he gets to Genesis and the genealogies of Jacob and Esau, you're going to see God's love. Because though the Bible says he hated Esau in regard of salvation, yet he gave Esau tremendous earthly blessings. He wasn't the child of promise, and yet he gained nation, possession, good standing with his brother, wealth, wives, children, all of it, the love of God. He didn't deserve it. He wasn't even the promised child. He wasn't even going to carry the seed of Israel, which would become Christ, which is the church. He wasn't even that. He was the rejected son. Yet God lavished love on him. All the days of his life, he lived under the pleasure of God. By God's pleasure, he loves even his enemies. And we see God's love break through in the name of Jesus. Maybe the most beautiful picture of this in the New Testament is Jesus standing looking at Jerusalem before his death. Arms stretched out, weeping, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, that great city, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings as a chicken does her chicks, and you would not. The picture of this God that I'm telling you about is the picture of a God who holds out his hands to the rebellious sinner only to be rejected time and time again, and yet He pleads, come, drink from the water of life. Have eternal life. That's our God. He is loving. God so loved the world. That means in this way He loved the world that He gave His only Son. Not only is there God's love in this passage, but we see He gave His Son. He acted on His love. Aren't you glad it's an active love? As I said before, it's not just some spiritual thought, some great idea. It's an action for God. God loved the world and He gave His only Son. He gave His Son the solution for our sin. I told you the condition of the world. It's sinful. I told you that that sin should condemn us, and yet God's solution to our sin is His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Ephesians, where I was earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, let me not stop at that 
crossroad there. Let me go ahead in the passage. You remember the last thing we read was that we were children of wrath, all the rest of mankind. And then in verse 4, he says, But God. Powerful words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that we were His enemies, we were children of wrath, yet His love was towards us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that grace, that faith is not a work of your flesh. It is the gift of God lest anyone would choose to boast about it. So God loved the world. He lavished that love through the Son, and those who are called according to His Son's name have been made alive. If you're here and you're in Christ, you're alive. Because of Him and His grace and the faith with which He's given you to believe in Him, you're alive this morning. And if you're not alive this morning, it is because you are a sinner. And the only solution to your sin is Christ. You know, it's a disturbing thing to me that in our day, the gospel has fallen out of popularity in the church. We want to spend our time talking about being Better husbands, better wives, better daughters, better sons, good businessmen. We want to spend all our days talking about how to get over our sin and all this man-centered stuff. Let me tell you something. It bothers the church in our day for a pastor to stand as I have this morning and present to you facts of the gospel. That bothers us because we think, well, we all know that. Why do we need to hear it again? That speaks volumes about the condition of our heart that a church could sit and listen to the gospel and not be broken. Thankful. Filled with praise, adoration, amazement, gawking at this Son of God who was hung on a tree on their behalf. The fact that Christians in our day can sit and listen to a gospel message and think this is old hat. I know it. It's too simple. Give me something more. That speaks of our fallen, sinful, depraved, old man nature. Because when the gospel is preached, the people of God rejoice. And when somebody reads the passage, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life, If anything besides amazement raises up in your heart, it's sin. Well, call it what it is. It's sin. If the first thought that comes to your mind is, oh no, i got to sit through another gospel presentation. Let's get to something more practical. It's sin. The fact that we go in a bookstore looking for books about anything except the gospel speaks condition of our heart. The ones who claim 
to be saved by this loving God who gave His only Son. And we trample that now underfoot as if it's old hat. Oh, Christian, when he hears the gospel, ought to leap with joy. And he ought to say, that's how I'm saved. Not by my hands. Not by my works. I'm saved by Christ. It ought to be new every time we hear it. It ought to cause rejoicing and praise. And it ought to cause us to fall before Him on bended knee. Because Acts 4.12 says, There is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved. There's no other solution, I'm telling you, to your sin. There's no other hope that you have lost man or woman or child. If you're hearing this message, there's no other hope except Jesus Christ crucified, raised from the dead, and the fact that you believe that with all heart and soul and mind. That's your only hope in this world or the next. That's the only hope. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Doesn't it, intri- it should catch your eye, that last phrase? Should not perish. It, it should seem odd to your eye that it doesn't say we'll have eternal life. You know, we, we think of eternal life as that which is coming. And yet Jesus said it's here. You believe in me? You live. You have, present tense, eternal life. John 10 verse 9 says, The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I come, verse 10, that they may have life, that they might have it more abundantly. What's the good news then? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? This is the simple gospel as so many have preached it before me. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Everyone in the world is a sinner. That's not just something we started doing at two or three or four. That was our nature. It's who we were. It's our DNA as humans to rebel against God. We're His enemies. And what we deserve is death. The wages of sin is death. What should happen is the earth should open up and swallow us so that we may no longer stand in God's good pleasure. That's what should happen. What should happen is the thread of loving grace which He now holds you by. He should cut that and let you fall in the pit of hell and suffer for eternity. What should happen is before you leave this place, sinner, in rebellion against God, you should have to face Him eyeball to eyeball and fall on your knee and say, You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what He should be able to say to you, because He is perfect and you are not, is get away from me. I don't know who you are. Go to the lake of fire that was prepared for Satan and his angels.
That's what should happen to you, sinner, before you leave, even as you sit and listen to this message. That's what should happen as you sit in that pew. You should face a holy, perfect judge who condemns you for all of eternity. That's what should happen. But it hadn't happened, has it? And that's the gospel. What is good news? For God so loved the world that He gave His Son that if you will look on Him, that if you will believe in Him, that if you will place your hope and trust in Him, that if you will say, I have no hope except He saved me, that if you will say, this is a treasure, I'll sell all and I'll have this treasure and nothing else. That if you say, this is the great pearl of great price that has been given to me, I want to sell everything I've got, my life, my family, my career, everything, so that I may have this pearl Oh God, please give me this treasure. If you do that, you'll not perish. You'll have everlasting life. Not in the future. Now, that is the good news. That is the good news. And all I can do is plead with you. And it doesn't bother me to beg you. Because if God would be so pleased to open your eyes and ears and give you life today, then it will be a good thing that I was a fool for Christ. I'm begging you to look at Christ and believe and be saved. I'm not asking. I'm begging you to be saved. Because that moment I described of standing eyeball to eyeball with Him is as close as bending over to tie your shoes and having a heart attack at 8 o'clock on a Friday morning when there was no sign and no clue that you would die. That moment of standing eyeball to eyeball with Him is as close as dozing off at the wheel and wrecking your car and dying instead of walking away. That's how close eternity is. And you may say, don't scare us, preacher. Oh, please be scared. Please be scared. No one has ever been saved that wasn't afraid to stand in front of that God that I've described to you, that loving and merciful God who has given His Son. And now I'm pleading with you, be afraid in your heart. For though He is loving, He is just. And you deserve to be condemned. And what I'm telling you is, if you look at Christ, you will be saved. And when you stand eyeball to eyeball with Him, you will fall with arms open saying, Oh, great Jesus, the love of my life. I finally get to embrace you and you embrace me. And instead of saying, go to that hell that was created for Satan and his demons, He will say, enter into your eternal rest, my servant. Good job. And He will embrace you. Because God loved you and He sent His Son that you might have life. That's what I'm begging you to do. And I don't make any apologies for it. And so, this is our call today.
This is the way we will close our service. We're going to bow our heads and close our eyes and there's no music playing in the background and there's no walking an aisle to get saved. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to deal with God. If you're lost, what I'm asking you to do is say, in your heart, in your being, in your very essence, I'm asking you that you've heard this message now that you say, Oh, Jesus, you are the treasure of my life. You are the Lord. You are the pearl that I longed to have. And now, Lord, I want you. Please save me. Please be the treasure of my life. That's what I'm asking you to do, sinner, is be saved this morning. And I have confidence that He will save you because He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's a definite thing. And it's immediate. And you will leave now in the pleasure and the smile of God, not His condemnation. And saved man, all I'm asking you is are you still amazed that you're saved? Or is it old hat to you? That's all I want to know. In your heart is, am I amazed at this Savior and this salvation? And if not, oh, repent. Please repent and ask forgiveness. Not for salvation. If you're saved, you're saved. But for that abundance that He promised, that's what I'm asking you to do. And at the time that you're done dealing with God on these matters, the communion table is open to you. I don't believe in rededication. I don't believe in being saved a second time. What I do believe in is that at these moments when we come to the table to take the elements of wine and bread that represent His blood and His body given for us, when we take that, it is communion. It is, it is an act of repentance and fellowship. And so at the end of this time, what I'm saying to you is if you believe in Christ as your Savior, this table is open to you that you might come and commune with the Savior. When you've taken it, You'll return to your seat and we'll actually take the supper together as a church. Father, would you be so pleased to call sinners to yourself this morning, to save them by your grace, by your mercy, save them and have communion with them. And may their first memory of salvation be that they came and took of the supper that represented your death and burial and resurrection and soon return. May that be their first memory. Lord, for those who are already saved, Lord, renew our salvation. Give us fresh passion that burns for your glory. And let us take this communion now and say in our hearts and in our minds, it is an amazing thing that I'm saved. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. I pray you.